Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name's Chris Bougay, and I'm here with Rachel Madel. Rachel, what's going on? Chris, I'm so excited. Can I tell you why I'm so excited? I'm dying to know. (laughs) So we just, uh, all summer, my team and I have been working on resources. So many of you guys know I uh, have a ton of resources, some of them free on my website, some of them are paid resources. Um, You know, anytime I'm thinking, oh, I need this in therapy, or I need this for a family that I'm working with, or what about this? we kind of create something and then I start using it in my own clinical practice. And then I'm like, okay, might as well share it. So this summer, you know, my team got together and we're like, okay, we haven't made any new resources in a while. So what should we do? And it was kind of a really blank slate because oftentimes the, the, the genesis of the idea is like, I'm in the middle of a session and I'm like, oh, like this would be really great to have this specific resource for this kid uh, or this family. Right. And that's not kind of what happened. The process was like, okay, we were going to build resources. And it was really hard because we just didn't have any clue as to what we were going to do. So we ended up landing on self-advocacy because this is something that I've definitely been really incorporating more of in my practice. As I talk to more autistic adults and AAC users, I am really thinking about self-advocacy and how important it is. Um, And so there's not a lot of resources that are out there that help clinicians teach some of these skills. And so I'm super proud of my team. And the reason I'm so excited is today, Chris, we've launched our first resource in the series of resources. Um, And this specific one is all about body parts. Because I find that, you know, of course we can teach kids the language of saying that they're hurt or they're tired or they don't feel good, um, which is awesome. But I think oftentimes it starts with teaching kids about their body parts, because if a child walks up to you with their AAC and starts saying stomach, 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 it tells you like, okay, they, they seem off today. And now they're saying stomach. I think that something's wrong with their stomach. Um, versus if a child says like, I don't feel good. I don't feel good. I don't feel good. And not knowing how to specify that becomes problematic, right? So kind of the first series that we've launched is on body parts. And we've made these amazing social stories to talk about parts of the body, both external, like arms, legs, nose, and then also the internal. So it's kind of a two-part book. And the most exciting part to me is that we've prioritized core language. So embedded into these social stories, not only is it talking about the different parts of the body and things that, you know, we might be feeling as far as sensations, but also in bold, really prioritizes core language. So as you're reading this with a child, you're able to then model core language on their AAC along with the body parts that should definitely be programmed into their AAC system. So um, we have the social stories and then also some companion activities with kind of interacting with like Johnny, you know, is tired. He needs and then need is a core word and then um, different kind of things like a Band-Aid, a tissue box, a bed, right? So uh, really excited about these resources. I'm excited to just use them in my own therapy because I feel like they're going to be so powerful for some of my students. And I'm just really excited to be supporting this idea that we need to be teaching these things early and often to kids because I feel like body parts is one of those things where it's like, oh, when they're early in early childhood, we're like, where's your nose? Where's your eyes? But then it kind of gets neglected. And, you know, sometimes it's not even included into an AAC system. And so that's the first step is making sure that that 
vocabulary is in there, but then also we have to go out of our way to teach kids about their body and teach them where those words are. What would you say to somebody that says, yeah, but Rachel, that's not core, core language. I focus on core language. I would say there's an 80-20 rule that we always talk about. <laughs> 80% of the time we focus on core language, but 20% of the time we focus on fringe. And this fringe is actually really important because circling back to that example I gave right at the beginning, if a child comes up to you and says, I don't feel good, but then doesn't have the language yet to be able to explain with specificity what's going on, at least by identifying a body part, then we're kind of stuck in a situation where we can't really help that much. Mm-hmm. I would also say this is a great reason why a core board is not enough. It's not, it's a tool. It certainly can be helpful, but it's not enough because where do you put the body parts on that core board, right? Exactly. One thing that also came up for us as my team was kind of putting this together was this idea of interoception. So understanding kind of these sensations in our body. And it really points me back to the episode we did with Chloe Rothschild. So Chloe Rothschild is a part-time autistic AAC user. And part of that interview, she talks about as an adult navigating the space of understanding her own body and the sensations that were happening in her body and how challenging that was and how beneficial and useful AAC was in really getting to the bottom of that interoception piece. So I would highly recommend you go back and listen to that episode. It was super powerful. And that has stuck with me. This idea that, you know, it not only is sometimes challenging for our students to really understand what's going on in their body, but then the second piece is attaching language to that. And if we can make that easier by showing them, you know, an AAC system and having that vocabulary in there and really modeling that, then think about how powerful that is in really giving our kids the tools to better understand their bodies and better communicate about them. What tools did you use to make these resources? We use mostly Canva. Um, we are like masters of Canva. In fact, I was poking around in there. Sometimes I'll like go in to look at something. And really what I try to do is just like, because I have so many things going on, I'll go in and I'll send a loom of kind of like, okay, this font needs to be changed. This I think needs to be reworked a little bit. I'll kind of give just general feedback and then my team will kind of come in and, and do it. And then we'll send different iterations and versions to each other. But sometimes I get kind of sucked into like the Canva magic and I like next thing I know, like an hour's passed and I've been like tinkering around with like a line on a document and like the font size and at, at some level I come out of it. I'm like, oh man, that, there goes an hour. But then I'm also like, this is kind of the creativity that like gets me in flow and gets me excited about these resources. And I also love that I really am a huge part of these resources. Yes, I have a team that helps me, but it's a joint effort and we're all kind of going in there and really collaborating at a high level. And yeah, it's just a really, it's really fun. That really screams your own introception. Like for some reason, I kind of needed to just kind of mess with the lines and just sort of, mm, I don't know move things around to make them look the way I like to make them look. And it feels good. Like you accomplish something, right? Yeah. Well, I feel like how, how often do we get the chance to really 
settle into creativity in what we're doing and have that creative outlet and that creative space. And I'll never forget this. Actually, it was a graduate. No, it wasn't a graduate course. It was an undergraduate course I took in college and it was all about, uh, it was all about creativity. So like that whole class, it was a four credit class, not just three. It was a four credit class about creativity. And I was like, huh, I was like, I don't know what this is all about, but like I'm in. And the class was so cool because we talked all about getting into a flow state and all the different kinds of ways that can happen. And my, my favorite part about the course, besides getting to go to like lots of cool, like poetry slams and dance performances and all of like our field trips were really fun. But the biggest takeaway from that course was we all have the ability to be creative in whatever work it is that we're doing. And I feel like that always stuck with me because sometimes like, I think it's easy to say, well, I'm just not a creative person. I'm not an artsy person, you know, and we all have the ability to bring creativity to whatever it is that we're doing, whether that's therapy or building a resource or, you know, explaining something to someone in a creative way. Um, and so that's stuck like this idea that we're all creative and really allowing ourselves to tap into that space. I feel like where do people get these resources? My website, you can just go to rachelmadel.com backslash shop. And um, yeah, there's going to be a whole lot more coming down the pipeline. That's just the first kind of resource that we've, uh, it's actually three resources, but we've bundled it together for like body parts, like all inclusive. Um, But yeah, throughout the rest of the year, we still are finishing some things up, but I'm really excited to keep kind of sharing what we're doing. And if you have any ideas on like, oh, I would love this resource or even feedback on our current resources, we're always open. And we're always kind of tweaking and and changing things to kind of better meet everyone's needs. Um, Our hope is just that these resources are really helpful for everyone. And they kind of give something to anchor into when you're in therapy. You're like, okay, today, like this is my plan. I'm going to read this this story and then, you know, maybe send it home. And then next week, you know, we can kind of keep kind of going through this. I think sometimes it's like, oh, yeah, body parts, self-advocacy. That's really important to, to teach my kids. But we don't really go out of our way to create those lessons, right? Like we have to do more than just, oh, my client's not feeling good today. So now I'll pull out the, like the device and model like, oh, you feel sick. You know, it's just like those, those instances are important to model language, but they're oftentimes not enough. We need to create more opportunities for learning around those types of things because otherwise it'll just be kind of a fleeting moment and it won't stick. Our kids need repetition. Tell us about your interview today. Well, Chris, I had the uh, amazing pleasure to interview Kimberly Neely. Kimberly is also known as a trauma-informed SLP. And so this interview is really incredible. I love the conversations that we had. She also talks about the evolution of discovering her own neurodivergence, uh, which I thought was a really great kind of add on bonus. And um, we talk all about trauma and how it impacts our kids, what we're doing that might be viewed as potentially traumatic. Um, And so it's a really great interview. I saw um, that she was interviewed, I think, on another podcast. And I was like, oh, we need to cover this on Talking With Tech. It's so important because our kids are really in need of us understanding trauma and us being sensitive to that and then us giving them the tools to be advocates for themselves. And so I'm really excited to share this interview I did with Kimberly Neely.
Hello, Talking with Tech listeners. I am India Oaks, and we are inviting you to join dynamic conversations with a community of people who are working together to make the world accessible for everyone at all times. And I'm Mailing Chan, and we're so excited to share the Exceptional Alliance's epic accessibility event to talk about all of the ways we can optimize how the world is experienced. That's right, Mailing. Accessibility isn't just about entry and curbs. It's about vocabulary, policy, innovation, research, how we access the world electronically, and so much more. Join Exceptional Alliances on October 20th and interact with intimate roundtable discussions about advancements in accessibility and live experiences. Registration's free, and it's important to remember that just by registering, you are actively supporting virtual event access, which demonstrates the value and continued interest in virtual events and supports accessibility. So grab your free spot at exceptionalalliances.com, and we look forward to chatting with you during the event. Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Meadle, joined today by Kimberly Neely. Kimberly, I'm so excited to have you here. Yeah, hey, thanks. I'm really excited to be here too. Awesome. (laughs) So let's just start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. Okay. Uh, So yeah, I'm Kimberly. I go by Kim usually. Totally fine. Um, Either way is fine. And um, I have been in the field, gosh, this is a second career for me. So I started out in opera and I taught voice for a while, came into the field with a voice interest, of course, but ended up being a huge generalist. So um, I did a couple years of a PhD program at University of Arizona, didn't finish it, which is okay. Um, But then I worked in the Bay Area in medical and I did schools and I did private practice out there. And then I sort of settled essentially into schools right before COVID hit. So I was doing a preschool then. um, And then I did a couple years of a high school. And right now I'm taking a break from schools just to get this whole trauma informed LLC thing going, the trauma informed SLP. I have a website. Uh, clinic outshoot is still in the works. I have a few people I'm going to connect with to get a bigger team together and see where we can take it. But I really wanted to start something. Um, I took a graduate level course on trauma informed care during COVID shutdown because I'd already been looking into it. But given my ADHD and my neurodivergency, I wanted to go deeper. I kept finding little tiny like surface level things, and I'm like, no, 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 no. I need like I got to go really deep on this because I need to know it. So I took a graduate level course that was designed for social workers and I was the representing the SLPs in the world. And, uh, (laughs) and then after that, I found online courses through the Arizona trauma Institute, trauma training Institute. And so now I'm a certified trauma support specialist through that, that I maintain through ongoing trainings Um, and really I noticed it started to become a great conversation on it. But I also wanted to get out there and start educating more on it because as I think in wellness culture, you know how diet culture got kind of, they co-opted wellness as a term. I had a little (laughs) concern. I had concern that like maybe I bet trauma-informed care is going to become kind of co-opted and like get used in ways that's not quite accurate. So Mm. I wanted to make sure. And also I find it to be 
I think it's part of my brain. I love finding big picture umbrellas where I can just kind of place everything. And I honestly think everything in our field should just be under this trauma-informed umbrella. Like all of it really fits. It's a whole paradigm and it's just a shift in how we approach things. And so, yeah, so that's what I'm doing. I, I'm so excited, Kim, you're doing amazing work, uh, you know, for the field and I'm excited to kind of dive in. I definitely asked you on this podcast because I think our listeners really need to hear this idea of trauma-informed care. So let's just launch into it for people who are like, what is trauma-informed care? Like, cause I think there's probably a lot of people out there who aren't sure even what that is. Can you just share what that is all about? Yeah, sure. Um, I could give you the short little elevator, my elevator speech version is kind of the tagline I use on my podcast, which is trauma-informed care is a way of just promoting safety, emotional, physical, psychological safety, and also empowering people through everything you do and all your interactions. And it also includes how you treat yourself and treating yourself with a lot of grace and compassion so that you create safety for yourself and you feel empowered to like seek out your needs, essentially. Um, And so to be truly trauma-informed, you do have to have some knowledge of what trauma does to a person, which for me, I like to focus on the physiology side because I think obviously there's psychological impacts, there's emotional impacts, but it's all rooted essentially in neuroscience. And that was kind of, I did a lot of neuroscience um, classes in my PhD thing. So (laughs) I get a little obsessed with that. But to understand that, that it is a physiological shift that occurs in somebody um, and it changes how they perceive the world, it changes how they function in the world. And then also understanding the flip side of that, which is promoting resiliency, which is not just pushing through. That's like kind of the toxic positivity side. That's kind of where it gets co-opted, I guess I would say, thinking of Mm. co-opting terms. But true resiliency is the ability to go through some level of adversity and not actually develop a traumatic response from that. Mm -hmm. So in trauma literature, they have noted, psychologists have noted that um, you could have two people go through the exact same event, say a car accident. Two people Mm -hmm. are in the same car accident. One could develop a trauma response from that car accident and one might not. And the Mm -hmm. one that doesn't is considered a resilient person. And they actually tend to be more statistical outliers. Mm -hmm. So of course, of interest to psychologists, because it's like, what makes them so resilient and how can we promote that for healing purposes Mm -hmm. um, or to reduce trauma responses? And so what they found is essentially the things that heal trauma are the same things that promote resiliency in people. Mm -hmm. And the first and foremost thing is having a sense of safety, having a place, a space, an environment, people around a community, ideally, where you can feel safe to feel whatever emotions you're feeling, process those emotions, um, and sort of connect that back to your body, essentially. Mm -hmm. That is one of the first steps to promoting healing. A lot of resilient people have, and resilient communities as well, and families, they tend to have some type of process they go through when there's losses, when there's grief, when there's adversity, Mm -hmm. where they all come together, they um, support each other, and they also allow safe space for everybody to feel what they need to feel. Mm -hmm. And that's what's really one of the key elements. Um, So it's kind of nice because if you promote resiliency, you're also promoting healing at the same time. And when you look at this, of course, you know, it works on the individual level and you can also kind of uh, zoom out to the sort of macroscopic like system so, so social level 
And that's where you start talking about intersectionality and social justice and equity and those sort of things, because um, that's one of the things I've been reading about actually recently looking into when I was uh, putting in my proposals for the next ASHA. <laughs> um, how I found this really fascinating article that said that internalized shame might actually be the main predict or main um, sign uh, or symptom of chronic trauma. So mm. it's how we characterize it. So chronic trauma or sustained trauma is like you're saturated in this environment of constant tra traumatic messaging, perhaps emotional abuse, verbal abuse, who knows, but you're constantly in this environment. So children in abusive homes, domestic violence, things like that get lumped into there. Um, so I guess I should back up. Let me back up a second. <laughs> ADHD brain just realized I should probably give some background there. <laughs> so, hold on. So, uh, so that's how we characterize trauma. We characterize it by single event. So like a car accident, mm -hmm. single event trauma, um, or natural disaster or something like that. And then you have um, repeated traumas, which honestly describes most people once they hit a certain age. Essentially, <laughs> most people will have some kind of what could be traumatic in their life. But repeated mm -hmm. means the same person has experienced several adverse events throughout their life. So it could be they're in a car accident when they're younger. And then 10 years later, maybe a natural disaster happens and they lose their home. And then maybe 10 years later, they, they lose a close loved one. And, you know, mm -hmm. this whole grieving process occurs. That's repeated. It doesn't have to be the same type. Mm -hmm. And then sustained or chronic, it's a type of repeated trauma, but it's when the environment itself is traumatic, basically. So you're mm -hmm. just, I think of it kind of like a sponge. You're just saturated in this unsafe environment, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, and we're, a lot of the literature is very focused on the chronic or sustained trauma because that is what wears down resiliency the most, mm. essentially. So when you see resilient people who are resilient against one event, that's one thing. But if you plop them in a unsafe environment, they might be resilient for a while, but it kind of makes sense. Like you can only defend yourself so much against the feeling of not being safe mm. and um, safety is the biggest, is the biggest thing I'll probably bring up the most <laughs> because where the thought is the the scientific theory around where trauma responses come from is that it's this, um, it, it it's, it's couched in our survival modes, mm -hmm. which are fine to have our flight, fight, flight, and freeze. So if we feel unsafe, our body gets sentenced to survival, our limbic system triggers, like we get the adrenaline rush, we get all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're given the safe space to sort of calm down and heal from that, we come out of that survival mode, no big deal. You had an experience and you learn, you know, something happened and you were able to sort of move past it. But in a trauma response, what seems to happen is, um, there's our amygdala, which gets a bad rap. Um, <laughs> I like to call it. People say it's the thing that makes you mad, but like, no, 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 no. The amygdala's actual job, like neuroscience wise, from what I learned in my grad class was it places a value on the stimuli that we get. So mm -hmm. anything coming from our somatic sensory system, any of that, just what's happening in our body at the time, our, our autonomic system, sorry. Yeah. Um, gets labeled. So it just assigns a value to it. It just appraises essentially. Mm -hmm. And if it's going to label something as a threat, then it's going to trigger the survival modes. Mm. 
So that's what happens there. The amygdala also then connects to an area in our prefrontal cortex called the anterior cingulate gyrus or anterior cingulate cortex. Mm -hmm. That is where we become aware that we're feeling an emotion. So anything Mm -hmm. happening midbrain wise, we're not that aware of it. Once the message gets up there, we start to be aware that something's happening. Um, And the anterior cingulate also can feed back to the amygdala. So it can actually tell it if it's like, hey, that actually wasn't a threat, by the way, <laughs> you know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of calm us down. That's that's its function there. But when we go into survival mode and if we're in it for a long time and if you end up developing a trauma response, what seems to happen is the frontal cortex gets downregulated. Basically, it's too slow to make decisions survival wise. This is why people go into what they call like a tunnel vision where it's like they're mm-hmm. looking for the exit sign if there's a fire or something, right? Like mm-hmm. your brain is just, solely focused on survival, the decisions tend to be happening lower than the conscious part of our brain, a little below that. And um, if the memory that's formed in that midbrain between the amygdala, the hippocampus, all of that, because it has direct connections. Mm -hmm. So if a memory gets formed there that then can't integrate into our conscious thoughts, like it doesn't get all the way to the anterior cingulate, That's Mm -hmm. where it seems to be a trauma response forms, because Mm -hmm. then when we experience something similar enough, the amygdala will sign it as a threat. We go right back into that survival mode. Anterior singlet's never getting to tell the amygdala whether it's true or not. Mm -hmm. So we're having this re-experiencing of this threat, even if it's the tiniest, this is what's called a trauma trigger. So like a smell, let's say somebody went through a fire, a house fire or something. If they developed a trauma response, maybe the smell of smoke might trigger Mm -hmm. that survival mode. They might start feeling anxious and panicky, or they might start to shut down and feel kind of closed off, right? Mm -hmm. But they have a fear response that's coming from that. Um, And so to heal from that, what's key is, uh, and this is really the work that like, true like, (laughs) this is where you need like psychologists and counseling, but integrating that interior singlet conscious awareness of what's actually happening at that moment mm-hmm. with that trigger so mm-hmm. that you essentially deprogram it. So the anterior signal is able to tell the amygdala, we smelled smoke, but that smoke's actually safe. We're at a barbecue. There's really no mm-hmm. worry here, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have to have that happen. So the amygdala can calm down and start to notice that there's differences, right? The other interesting thing to me, especially when it comes to AAC and when it comes to neurodivergent populations and non-speaking, especially, mm-hmm. um, is that anterior cingulate has direct connections to Broca's. So in order of us to label an emotion, we have to have it in the anterior cingulate to begin with. So if you have that disconnect happening, you can't label it. You don't know what you're feeling. Wow. Yes. Which is, which is something called alexithymia. And I don't know if you've heard of that, but no, <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm, I'm learning no so worries. much, Kim. No worries. Keep going. Totally fine. Tell, tell us. I, well, what, I don't even know what you just said. <laughs> oh my God. I love info dumping. Let's do it. Okay. Um, <laughs> I love it. Um, Alexithymia is something that we see um, autistics tend to have it a fair amount, but also trauma uh, trauma victims can have this alexithymia wherein essentially they're unable to recognize their own emotions and they might be unable to recognize emotions in other people too. There's that piece of it as well Mm -hmm. Um, because you need some, there's a, the insulin needs to be involved in some of that, but (laughs) But essentially the thought is, so a lot of times these people are having feelings, they might be able to notice their body feels a certain way, but they can't label it. So this is where 
uh, prior to me getting my own mental health treatment. Honestly, I probably had a fair amount of it because I was pretty dissociated. That's how I that's how I got through grad school in this mm. program. It's just, mm-hmm. Everybody's like, you look so calm. And it's like the secret is you feel nothing and you look a, <laughs> you look like you got it all under control. Uh, right. <laughs> I don't recommend it. <laughs> Side yes. note, feelings are good. Um, but um, what tends to happen is you might notice like your stomach might hurt. You might have a headache. You might feel nervous, like your body feels jittery, but you can't label of an emotion to that. Like mm-hmm. you can't say, I feel anxious or I feel frustrated or I feel like you're not able to really connect that because it's not getting all the way up to that conscious area. The mm. only thing that's really getting up there is, you know, when I pay attention, yeah, I feel kind of like fluttery and kind of in my body or I feel exhausted or I feel you get these somatic um, symptoms, essentially, of mm-hmm. the feeling that's coming from the auto- autonomic system but it's just not getting to our conscious thoughts mm. and we're not able to really label it. And so that's the thought is why alexithymia seems to be in trauma victims. What's interesting is, you know, when we look at neurodivergence and we think of more societal things and we listen to autistic advocates who talk about maybe compliance-based certain treatments and things like that, where they were forced mm. to do things and feeling inherently unsafe as children. and then they end up having some level of alexithymia. So it's kind of that interesting, like, hmm, I don't know if it's chicken or egg, but it does seem interesting to me that there's a level of likely chronic trauma in that population and also common signs of alexithymia in it as well. So it's just, it's an interesting thing. (laughs) Food for thought. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because I think that, uh, I think that all of our listeners can probably relate to an experience Mm -hmm. they've had personally where they had this trauma trigger, right? We've all Mm -hmm. had situations where like, why am I so upset about this? Like, why? They didn't text me back. Why does this like move me so emotionally right now? Right. And so I think that we can understand this idea of like, oh, like this triggered something in my system and bringing that Mm -hmm. awareness to that trigger and, you know, questioning that story, right? That we tell ourselves exactly underneath that feels like the process that, you know, we we can go through to kind of heal and to move Mm -hmm. forward so that we're not so triggered by this type of event. So I think we can all understand that, which I think is is really helpful. And then if we we understand it in ourselves, then imagine, you know, a scenario where, like you mentioned, we are, you know, working with students who mm-hmm. have had trauma, right? Yep. In ways that we came in really even begin to fathom. It might not even know. Yeah. It might not be labeled that, but right. it might, be, it might not right? be labeled mm-hmm. that. But again, from autistic advocates, we're hearing like that was traumatic. And so mm-hmm. we're all as a field, I think really listening or many of our listeners are listening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hopefully. hope all of us are listening. Unfortunately, I don't know that all of us are listening, but hopefully yeah. that changes. Um, right. But, you know, we're listening and we're realizing, you know, we need to be more careful about what we're doing, how we're doing it. And then I think that just the intersection with this idea of not being able to label my emotions first mm-hmm. internally, but then also maybe I can internally label it, but I don't have the means to express it because no one ever taught me where that language right. is. Like, on an what do you do? System. Oh yes. That's a whole, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it opens up this whole can of like can of worms, I guess, but this whole yeah. other possibility of like, what language do people need in order to do this? What do they need mm-hmm. on their device to promote their own safety? 
mm-hmm. to know about what they need for regulation, to be able to request those things, to be able to protest. Mm-hmm. That's a mm-hmm. big one. Yeah. A big, big, big one. Um, that often gets overlooked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, and I think that that's the tricky part because, um, giving easy access to that, I think is so important. I started doing that. Unfortunately, the preschool I was at, they didn't really have access to a lot of high tech things, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had like, I had like and dislike printouts and I had like, you know, uh, low tech, but maybe all this stuff like that. And I actually had like a like, dislike scale where it's like the Mm. the extreme dislike of like, this makes me feel sick or this is painful, like to some Mm. extent, because even preschoolers can start to figure that out. If it's like touching that Play-Doh is like physically repulsive to you, you can point that it's like, I'm going to be sick if you make me do that. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's a very clear advocate of like being able to advocate and say, "Uh uh-uh, not Play-Doh for me. (laughs) Please don't, don't put my hand on that. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. So, and I started doing it with high tech, especially with my high schoolers. I started trying to put in, um, particularly for one who like his, well his device needed to be reorganized but uh he had a wants and needs button that got him to pages you know on his main page his first page uh, on touch chat but i put in a self-advocacy button that he could access really fast and i put in full phrases that were very clear Mm. like um so one of the things for him was he got he had a lot of motor like comorbid motor things going on Mm -hmm. and he got physically redirected as we say by some of the paraeducators and now this is a fully grown teenage boy like he's taller than me right mm-hmm. but he's getting physically redirected and it always upset him and it always dysregulated him but they did it anyway right mm-hmm. um and so i put in a button that said i do not like to be physically moved like mm-hmm. i just put a nice firm Mm-mm, don't do this mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I showed him that button, he literally went around to every single parrot in the room and pressed the button in their face and stared at them like, I don't like to be physically moved. And I was like, ah, yay, good. We needed that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I also put in a button that says like, you know, I understand more than you think I do because people always assumed he didn't know what was going on, but I'm pretty sure he was pretty aware of what was going on most of the time yeah he was just a teenage boy uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> who sometimes was like i don't want to so right. like, exactly hey, that's fair um yeah. so i put in things like that i also put in um i i asked him if he wanted a way to say that because i noticed at his iep meeting i don't think he liked the idea that we were talking about him and he wasn't in the room initially And he came in later, but I was like, would you like a button that says, please don't talk about me like I'm not here. And I was like, you know, and he like nodded and I was like, okay, we'll give you that button that says, don't talk to me like I'm not in the room or don't talk about me if I'm not in the room, like, like I'm not in the room or anything. And so things like that, very useful, um, just to help give people a voice. And so obviously for younger kids, it could be a more simplified message, but, um, 
that's some of my ideas for advocacy anyway, because that's a really big piece. I think that I want to call out this idea of using more specific language in Mm -hmm. in a phrase based way, because Mm -hmm. I think when we're thinking about self-advocacy, we need it to be fast um, because I need to advocate for myself before I become dysregulated and something happens that I don't like. And I love the idea of being specific because in that scenario where you programmed, you know, I don't like it when you move my body. um, Mm -hmm. If, if we had taught that student how to say, I don't like it, it could have been like, well, I know you don't like math, but like we have right. to go to math, exactly. right? And it can be totally misinterpreted exactly. um, and then mm-hmm. negated, right? Like, yep. I know yep. you don't like to change seats, but it's like, no, I don't like when you physically move me, right? right. Like, right. So being like more specific. ask me instead. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. So I yeah. think that that's an important point is that... Um, you know, I, it, it obviously it needs to start with this idea. And sometimes, I mean, I do this with my own clients and students mm-hmm. is like, I like it. I don't like it to kind of teach the framework, but then yes, if we have exactly. these situations that are coming up where it's like, okay, there's a very s- specific thing that you don't like. Exactly. Let me give you the specific language to communicate that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why I did phrase base for that reason. Like, especially for high schoolers, I feel like Let's give them a whole phrase. But even for preschoolers, I would probably give my thought with giving a phrase too was I wanted to make them specific, but also so clear Mm -hmm. that if another staff member or faculty member overrode that request, it was a very clear, like they did not care if they harmed them. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I want it to Mm -hmm. be like this. Let's not pull any punches here. Like, if you go ahead and do this anyway, you are harming them and you know you're doing it. And that's not okay. Right. That's let's take out the gray area. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? I, I'm thinking yeah. about a specific example that I just was observing my student um, a couple weeks ago and he was dysregulated. He was hitting lots of buttons. I think he, I think when we, we become dysregulated and mm-hmm. we're not able to communicate about it, mm-hmm. we start to get impulsive because we're like, yep. I just want this to stop and I just need mm-hmm. something to, to happen here. Mm-hmm. And so he was hitting, you know, a lot of different words on his AAC system. And then he found stop and he kept saying, stop, 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 stop. Ooh, yeah. And he was saying it over and over again. And I'm just like observing and this kind of a, it's a tricky case because it's like a legal case and I'm like not oh, supposed geez. to interject, yeah. but I'm right. like, I'm watching this and I'm like, they're not honoring his stop. Like he's they're saying stop, stopping. they're not stopping. And it was oh. a really uncomfortable moment for me because yeah. I'm not supposed to intervene, but I just had to. I was like, hey, just so you know, we're working on stop and go at home. And like, he's telling you stop, I think right now. Yeah, like stop. <laughs> is a pretty clear yes. message and and i think because yeah. it was like well he always just hits all the buttons and they're saying all these things and i'm just like yes but he, yeah mm-hmm. but he also just like landed on stop and just kept hitting it over and over again so like yeah. i think that that's he's, the message he's shouting at you basically like yes, he's exactly. yelling stop exactly yeah um right. so so kind of to that point of let's give, you know, phrase-based language that's more specific. I think that it's easy to just be like, oh, well, they just said that one word once, you know, and they also said it was some other words. And I just think that when you have a phrase that's like, I don't like it when you talk about me, (laughs) I don't like it when you do this. Like, I think that that is just like a lot more, um, it's a lot more apparent to all of the adults um, in the room. Right. And honestly, if you look at speaking students, they say things like that. 
and then they yeah. get their meat needs met. They mm-hmm. say like, I don't like that. I don't like those chips. I don't like that drink. I don't, I don't want to lay down there. Like they yeah. say specific things and then totally. they get their needs met. And then our non-speakers don't have the same access to a quick way of saying, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Basically a quick and yeah. firm, firm. I have to include the firm. Don't, don't even try to be polite when it's like dysregulating. Yeah. But um, I love what you brought up too about how like, yeah, when you're in that meltdown, panic attacky, whichever way you want to say it, kind of state, um, you can't really functionally come access language. You just mm-hmm. it's it's starting to get so down regulated. So um, I was actually just I was having a nice little like um, consult kind of chat with another SLP the other day, and I mentioned how um, so I get panic attacks. I take medicine, so mm-hmm. they've helped a lot, but. And honestly, I'm still on the fence as to whether some of my panic attacks are actually meltdowns. I think sometimes they are Mm -hmm, (laughs) sensory meltdowns. mm -hmm. Um, And I also have sensory shutdowns for sure. Like when I'm in new environments and it's just a lot, I start Mm -hmm. to shut down a bit. But um, like I've had panic attacks like three hours plus, if not longer. So um, Mm. when I'm under a lot of stress, for example, (laughs) when I was in my master's program (laughs) for SLP. I think uh, we can relate. (laughs) Yeah, you know, like that kind of happens, right? Um, Yeah, the first spring semester, I went to University of Arizona. At the time, the first spring semester was just loaded with super hard classes. Like it was just so much. And there was a week, I think it was like midterms week where I had like five midterms in four days. And I was just like can't handle this. And I looked like I handled it fine because I dissociated during the day. And then I went home at night and I would have like three or four hour long panic attacks, which were just, which also it got worse because it's like now I'm spending time panic attacking when I need to be studying. So it just yeah kind of fed off each other itself. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's kind of funny because my, my husband and I, we needed to come up with a plan to help me because it's like, I can't, there's a certain point where I can't self-soothe. It's just going to happen and it's mm-hmm. going to be as long as it needs to be. And I can't mm-hmm. stop it myself because there's a certain point where um, my husband has epilepsy. So I often explain it to him as I feel like I'm having an emotional seizure. Essentially. I know I'm not really like, I don't mm-hmm. think it's actually, I know emotional seizures are things that happen, but it feels like my emotional system has taken over my body and I cannot stop anything. And I whack myself. I start hitting my legs. I start hitting my head. I start trying to cause myself physical pain to like jerk out of it. Mm -hmm. And of course that disturbed him. So he's like, what's happening when that happens? Like, I want to, can I help? Like, how can I help with that? And so I told him, I said, when I get to that point of no return, essentially, what I start saying is I want it to stop. I want, I want it to stop. I want it to stop. And I'll just say the same phrase over and over again, because it's the only thing I can think of, which is like, I want the feeling to stop, but I can't stop it. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't stop. I can't stop. I want it to stop. Make the stop. You know, I keep saying that over and over again. And I said, so if I'm doing that, especially if I'm hitting myself and saying that, then I probably need some sort of external like for for me, it really helps with like a really tight hug or something. Mm-hmm. Like something mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. starts to pull me out of it if it's like an external stimuli. Mm-hmm. So that became his cue of like, okay, let me like grab her and hold her and let her like hear, listen to my heartbeat, and that helped me calm down a lot at that point. Mm. Um, and so it's funny to me because for me, as a graduate student, as a functional adult, you know, as we would say, or whatever, (laughs) not a functioning label person, but you know what I mean? People would look at me and be like, oh yeah, she's capable. They'd presume competence. But if they saw me in that state, they would probably still presume competence 
me as a human, they would just know something's wrong, right? Like my friends would have been like, what's going on with Kim? Let's help her. Oh my gosh, mm -hmm. how can I help you? Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But when we see young kids having meltdowns, we don't presume the same level of competence. We mm -hmm. don't presume they're human. We don't presume that they need our help with calming their body. Right. And we don't give them that respect of like something big happened here to them. And now mm -hmm. we have to help them feel safe again. And I think that's a real shame. I think that's part of the thing, like now that I'm reading about more about dehumanization and when it comes to autistics and other neurodivergence and especially non-speakers is like, if we expect, a, if we, if speaking kids would do it and then we would treat them differently, we need to stop doing that. If it's like a double standard essentially of like, yeah. yeah. So if they have a device and they're in the middle of a meltdown or on the start of a meltdown and they're just hitting buttons and they're frantic about it, it's like, that's the same thing as me just saying the same word over and over again when I'm in the middle of a panic attack and I can't mm -hmm. stop it. Like mm -hmm. that's me calling out for help. Right. And that's just how the brain works. You just can't always get those language centers. You get more of that automatic speech, essentially, what we would call automatic. Right. That emotive speech. Yeah. yeah. And so and like it makes sense to me that a user, an AAC speaker would do thing on their device. They would have an emotive, like reactive speech essentially makes sense you know yeah no it makes it makes perfect it makes perfect sense and i think that the mm -hmm. key here is that i think the takeaway message is mm -hmm. can we just see these meltdowns as a call for help mm -hmm. instead of exactly they don't want to do this this is for attention yes. this is all the things that we hear right like it and it's manipulative and, yeah yeah and i think that it's just like I think it kind of circles back to this whole idea of neurodiversity and, mm -hmm. you know, specific sensory differences that we don't, you know, understand necessarily, um, mm -hmm. you know, things that are going on internally that because they don't have mm -hmm. a consistent external voice yet, um, yep. that we can't possibly understand. Um, mm -hmm. I just think that, you know, ultimately like we really need to handle these types of situations with care and empathy. And, um, yes. I think that's, part of the challenge in the work that I do, I do a lot of work with families, but I also am working alongside of um, other professionals in schools and things like that. And it's just yes. like, whenever we have a child upset and crying, like, why are we not caring for them? <laughs> you know, yeah, like it just, we it need to handle feels, that. Yeah. It feels kind of crazy when we think about the way that it, we treat yeah. children, you know, especially, you know, non-speaking children, but just in general, like mm -hmm. when the child's crying and really upset, like, we need to give them care, love and support. Yeah, exactly. And so it was actually kind of funny because I was um, I'm starting to try to figure out how to do Instagram videos. <laughs> I know it's taking me forever to figure out. <laughs> I'm still trying to but figure anyway. it out, Kim. <laughs> oh, Lord. I was like, you know, I should probably put out like short videos as like extra educational bits, which would probably be really helpful. And then mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't know. The brevity thing that's not my strength um you need a really good editor kim i have a team that I like do, I i'll do. send them like a four that's minute probably video good. And i'm like make it into 30 seconds <laughs> honestly i might want to get their names from you because i'm doing all my editing on my own podcast too which takes forever oh that, my, my goodness. episodes take forever because i'm editing myself and it's 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 a challenge sometimes yeah. uh, so um yeah. So I was actually just thinking about that because I was looking through, you know, there's the whole smart plan for meltdowns and, mm -hmm. you know, there's the meltdown versus tantrum. Right. And mm -hmm, we see tantrums mm -hmm. as being 
And you know what? I was thinking back about it. And like for all the kids that I saw, I think I only saw one kid who did what I would call a tantrum. The rest of them were either meltdowns or just kids having emotions. Like (laughs) it was just big emotions because they don't have inhibition basically they're just like i feel mad and i'm gonna show you how mad i am right. <laughs> like yeah that makes sense you're little like yeah you, i don't pa- expect you to it's part of typical yeah. development right totally, this is what all right? kids and do so, exactly like kids are gonna have big displays of emotion and they're gonna display them in ways they've been modeled mm-hmm. or in ways that hopefully get some kind of reaction or some kind of need met like you're saying they need mm-hmm. help of some kind and like we can help them through that with communication. We can help them through that with modeling. And like the tantrum kid, what I did, the one kid who I was like, yeah, he's definitely just like, it was the classic, like stare at me and then, "Ah!" and then like, you (laughs) know, if I was looking, he would yell and then he would stop and stare. And I was like, this is the first time I've ever seen like a pure, totally in control tantrum, but I still handled it like it was dysregulation. And Mm -hmm. then that kid, like he gave up after a while. It's like, oh, you're not just going to give me that toy I want just because I'm yelling and screaming. And it's like, no, we have to like, you have to request, you know, you have to tell me how are you feeling and what do you need and da, da, da. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, not toy, but like, how's your body? (laughs) Yeah. Here's the symbols. Here's all the stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and that kid just, he, I, yeah, he just had to learn like, oh, okay. Like, that's not how I get a toy, I do get attention and I get help, mm-hmm. but I don't get a toy. Right. And it's like, okay. Um, so I think that's the thing. Like, maybe we just need to definitely shift that idea of like kids always tantruming to melt, to like manipulate. It's like, yeah. no, it's most of the times they're just having an emotion and they need to have their emotion <laughs> and maybe yeah. they need a better way to express their emotion, mm-hmm. you know, like totally. don't throw blocks. Not great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like you mentioned kind of your own experience with panic attacks, which was really helpful, I think, to kind of share your experience and then kind of think about the students experience that we have working with with kids. Um, but I think part of what you mentioned was this idea of co-regulation, um, which I think mm-hmm. that many people don't either understand or aren't really sure what that means. Um, so can you speak yes. to that a little bit? Because I feel like that's a huge piece sure. to this to this puzzle. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, co-regulation essentially, it essentially means that us as the, as the adult in the room, we have to regulate ourselves. So, um, cause kids can be dysregulated, no mm-hmm. doubt. And if you feel yourself getting dysregulated, it's not time for you to step in and try to regulate that kid. If you are frustrated or upset or impatient, if you, it might just come across in your body is we got to get this done. We got to move past this. We got to do this thing. We got to get the data, right? Mm-hmm, it's like, mm-hmm. mm-mm, mm-mm. if that's the state you're in, that's not the time to teach regulation. You need to take a break and calm first. Mm-hmm. Then you can come back and start teaching regulation because, um, yeah, if you're going to help co-regulate someone, you have to stay calm. So similar to my own experience, once my husband knew what to do to help me regulate, he was able to stay calm. Right. Prior to that, he kind of freaked out himself. Like, what is right. happening to <laughs> like, what's happening to Kim? What do I do? Mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, once I told him about what was going on, he's like, oh, now I know what to do. And so now I know to help. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's having an emotional response to seeing me be in distress. But he himself was able to like, OK, I have a plan. I can stay calm. I can. 
we can get this, you know, taken care of and I can help. I can be active in helping, which is essentially what you're going to do when you try to co-regulate with the kid. Um, I have had times with kids where if I start to feel a little frustration, I might just say that on my, like I might use their either low tech or high tech, whichever way I might tell them that I need to do this for myself. Mm-hmm. Would you like to do it with me? <laughs> like, yeah, like I need to take a breath. Would you like to take a breath? Let's take a breath. <laughs> I you know, had or- that experience yesterday. I was getting very frustrated yeah. with one of my clients and I was like, I'm going to do three big, deep breaths, big belly breaths. Exactly. <laughs> You're welcome to join. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. So it's just you modeling what you need to do. So if you're still, you know, if you feel yourself starting to go there and you know, you just need to back off and do something, then yeah, letting them know that's what you're doing. Like, Mm -hmm. you know what? I need to take a break. I'm going to go stare at this glitter bottle. Would you like a glitter bottle? Let's take a break. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What do you want to do during this one minute break? Cause I need a break. Um, and I think that's important too. And a lot of times, um, one thing I started doing at the private practice I was at is with all my autistic kids, preschool, high school, it didn't matter. I always asked them how they were feeling at the beginning of every session. Mm-hmm. I always had, I had a little, well, at that time it was a feeling scale. Probably now I would use autism level up stuff. I just love their stuff. I'm not, I know it, me I too. Them. Me too. Oh my God. That energy level meter meter is so good. Um, <laughs> their energy regulation suite. So good. I would probably use that now, but it didn't exist at the time. And so I would always ask them though, how they were feeling at the beginning of the session, because mm-hmm. sometimes they'd come in all dysregulated and then it's like, cool, let's figure out what we can do to help with that. Yep. Um, you know, and sometimes I also would share what I'm feeling. So sometimes mm-hmm. it's like, I'm feeling pretty tired. I'm feeling a little sick almost, but you know what? I'm happy to see you, you know, something mm-hmm. like that, where it's like, I can feel two things. Cause I'm an adult. <laughs> yeah. I have complex yeah. emotions like in inside out. Uh, <laughs> Yep. (laughs) In the movie. Um, So, you know, I think that's also good to display. I actually had that with the high schooler last year. Now that I remember this is a speaking high schooler, but he did have really significant dysarthria from a syndrome and he often got treated like he was not as intelligent as he is because of how he's talked, Mm -hmm. which was sad. But there were moments where, but he also had a significant trauma history. So I don't think he was still trying to learn like emotions and how to express them and stuff like that. So I would use the energy level meter with him. And there was a day where I got him and I was having a bad day at work, man. It was just one of those days. I was like, I cannot wait to get home. I am like so done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I just want to get home and zone out and eat some ice cream. Like, Rrr. And so he came up to just visit me and I was like, oh, hey, da, da, da. And, you know, he was like, he's like, how are you? And I'm like, I'm going to be honest, D. I don't feel good today. I feel horrible. I'm actually kind of, a, I'm just upset. My body feels like this. This is the energy. I would say these are my feelings. That's just how I'm feeling. But it, I'm happy to see you. You're cool. You have mm-hmm. nothing to do with how I'm feeling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, you're making me actually feel better. How are yeah. you doing? You know? And it was so funny because he looked at me and he was like, you don't feel that way. You don't look like you feel that way. And I'm like, I might not look it, but I do actually feel that way internally right now. I am feeling a bit what that a way. What a beautiful you know? example <laughs> of how we can have an outward appearance, but also have a different mm-hmm. internal experience. I also feel like that mm-hmm. specifically opens up a really awesome conversation about masking and like what that looks like and exactly. how that shows up. Yes. And so I think that's like <gasps> perfect that's to such a big conversation too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Cause masking is definitely, definitely a thing. It's so, so funny. I've actually, I feel like I'm trying to learn to not mask. This is my goal for myself this year, especially since I'm not, I'm like just working from home right now. So I'm like, Hey, cool. I don't have to mask with my dog. That's dope. But, um, <laughs> like, like sweet, but, but, um, I took, there is a, a questionnaire for autistics on like levels of masking and I scored mm. really high and I was like, I thought I wasn't, oh geez, <laughs> I'm still, still doing it. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's definitely, and I think it's interesting because I think being able to recognize what your body's feeling like, whether it's energy, whether it's actually attached to an emotion, if you can recognize it and also recognizing how you're being treated, like what that emotion is trying to tell you essentially. Mm -hmm. So like if a kid is, you know, if they don't want to be physically moved and somebody moves them and that makes them upset, they need to know, this is what I call, this is the other flip side of empowerment and advocacy is I call it presuming they can take it competence. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) long phrase, not that, not that snippy, but, uh, (laughs) but presuming it in the sense of there are people out there who are likely going to treat you not very well, who are not going to honor your requests. Mm -hmm. And I can't change that. You, you know, there are times, even with the preschooler, sometimes I'd be like, you requested and you did what you needed to do. They ignored that. And that is not your fault. Mm-hmm. That is them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And sometimes with my high schoolers, I would teach them, especially high schooler autistics, um, would start teaching them like, you know, what that can tell you is, do you want to trust this person or not? Mm. Right. Like. Because a lot of times they, they internalize the sense of I did something wrong. I was treated that way because I didn't say it right. I didn't do it right. I didn't phrase it right. And it's like, it's not about you doing it right or wrong. It's about other people making assumptions about you and just doing what they want to do and not Mm -hmm. thinking about you. Mm -hmm. And like, because I think what a lot of the masking is, is that it's really that shame. It's hiding what you're ashamed of about yourself. It's feeling Mm -hmm. like you're chronically wrong because bad things happen when you're quote unquote wrong in your head Mm -hmm. and social rejection Mm -hmm. and professional rejection. In my case, things like that happen when you're wrong, quote unquote, the, the other guys, the speaking guys or the neurotypicals, they're doing it right. And I'm doing it wrong. That's how you internalize it. So masking comes from that. It comes from, I have to always behave correctly, quote unquote, mm-hmm. so that people will like me. And so I deserve to be treated well. That's like, you don't feel like you deserve to be treated with respect unless you're doing it, quote unquote, right. That's where the danger comes, I think, with the masking. Yeah. And so a lot of times with uh, my autistics, I would definitely, um, one thing I did for my high schoolers, I used the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, which Mm-hmm. I am a donating member of. I have my mug. Hey, about us. Um, hey. But um, yeah, they have a really great self-advocacy curriculum. And my high schoolers never heard about like the word neurodivergency. They didn't know about that. They didn't know about person first versus identity first and what the whole discussion was and like mm-hmm. that kind of stuff and what masking was. And it's like, I need to let you guys, I want you guys to know these things because you're about to graduate. You're about to be autistic adults. And there are autistic adults out there who can mentor you and take care of you. And there are communities that are safe, but you have mm-hmm. to be able to find them. So you have to be yeah. able to use these words to find them. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, and so I would teach them about like what the masking is because some of them masked really well and some of them mm-hmm. didn't. So, some of them have no choice. They just come right. on, you know, they, especially motor 
comorbid motor and stuff, they they don't have an option to mask. But if you do have the option to mask, it's that like you feel like you're doing it wrong. And mm-hmm. so teaching them to be able to say like, you know what, sometimes people don't always treat you well. And I even did it with some of my preschoolers. This is kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I said, I think I said this on the making the shift podcast. I'm not sure if it made it into the edits, but I remember saying, um, I talked to my preschoolers kind of like they're little adults. Like I would talk to, I'm sure other SLPs would think I was nuts, but I was like, they're so good receptively, so much Mm -hmm. higher than we would think. Yeah. Even the non-speaking ones or anything. And so there's this one little kid who, um, you know, their parent meant well, but they had a lot of compliance-based stuff going on. And there was a lot of assumptions made about this kid's ability to pay attention based off of trigger warning, whole body listening, Mm. (laughs) trigger warning for autistics out there. Yeah. Uh, And things like that. And this kid always looked off to the side and up when he was really paying attention. And I was Mm. like, oh no, he's listening. Like, I know that's his listening face. I got it. We're fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the staff members were like, oh no, he needs to look and da, 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 da. And I like, I know he's not paying attention. I'm like, in my brain, I'm thinking, do you though? I don't think you know. (laughs) Yeah. He's always really, he's really good at paying attention like that. So there was a day at the end of the session, I started walking out with him. He was going to library time and it was just me walking with him. And I had been working on regulation, working on having him explain himself, like Mm -hmm. advocate for himself and say, this is what he needs. And this is how he listens. I was trying Mm -hmm. to give him Mm less, like, I do listen better this way. I want to do it this way. Right. This is how I listen. Mm -hmm. And, um, we'd been working on it and then so on the way out from that person correcting me constantly, wanting him to like, look, 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 look. And it was like, stop prompting, please. But they kept mm-hmm. doing it. So like, okay. So we walked out and I was like, you know how I've been working on like having you like working on ways of telling people how you need to listen and what you need. And he just kind of, you know, kept his head down, kept walking next to me. And I'm like, that's why I want to do it. Because sometimes these, these adults think they're doing the right thing for you, but they don't understand what's going on in your head. And I want to give you a way to explain to them what you're thinking and feeling. And then he like stopped. We were on the gravel halfway to the library and he stopped and he just started turning around and going back to the session room. And I was like, I was like, oh no, we can keep working on it later. We don't have to miss library. (laughs) Aww. We don't have to have more session, but like, yeah, this is just for you to be able to talk to like your parents and everybody. But I was like, it's just one of those moments where I'm like, oh my God, see, like it's, if I had assume, if I didn't presume competence, if I didn't presume this kid understood what I was saying, um, you know, like I wouldn't have had that great moment of him. Like he knew exactly what I was saying. And he was like, I want that. That's what I want. Let's go back. Let's do it again. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. Totally. But then, you know, at the same time, Later on down the road, of course, I did have to explain to that kid that you're saying it right and they're just not listening. And I'm sorry. Sometimes adults don't always listen. When kids got really good with regulation, I used to say things like (laughs) once, especially my preschoolers, when they got some of those kids got so good at telling you what their needs were and where Mm -hmm. they were at. And and I would always honor it. And we had great rapport and it was great. But in the classroom, they were so dysregulated because mm-hmm. it always got ignored. And so yeah. sometimes I would just tell them, I'm like, you're so good at knowing a lot of adults don't know this. They're not as good at it as you. Ugh, it's like, such a you're yeah. able to calm yourself down. And these these adults aren't able to. And that's yeah. why they're yelling at you. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I know. know. Yeah. yeah. Having those like and it's really so frustrating. Yeah. It's so hard. It's so hard to see, but it's like, I had to be honest with them. And I just wanted, 
I want to teach them that because I want them to know that I don't want them to internalize a sense of shame. They didn't mm-hmm. get their need met because they were it's like, no, no, yes, yes. You're a, a four year old. Totally. <laughs> you're not wrong. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's not you. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I wish I could change the system and I wish I could change society, but you know. Well, Kim, you are I'll doing, try. you're doing amazing. You're doing amazing with the work that you're doing. And I'm really yeah, excited. Well, thank you. I'll keep I, trying. Yeah. yeah. I, I appreciate you coming on and talking all about your experiences for people who are like, oh my gosh, yes, more of this. Like, where can people find you on online? Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, so I am on Instagram. Mine is actually becoming trauma informed SLPs. I believe is my mm-hmm. Instagram. Um, <laughs> I do have a podcast called the Trauma Informed SLP, and I put my contact stuff in the show notes. I do also have a website, um, which is pretty much just, I think, hold on, let me look it up here real quick. Whoop. We'll put, yeah, we'll definitely link to it. Yeah, but. I'm on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm on Facebook and things too. I just can't quite remember. Hold up. What my actual, okay, it's trauma-informed-slp.com. So there's gotcha. dashes in there. We will. My neurodivergent brain hates it when words are squished together. I get like, <laughs> I'm like, I can't read it without a space. It's so... yes. It's a good point. That's it's a good thing. point. Yeah. Um, it's my thing. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, we'll definitely link to all those in the show notes. Um, Kim, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing all of your experiences thank with you. us. Awesome. Some of it was helpful. I know I, I can talk an awful lot, but thank you. <laughs> no, it was, it was awesome. I feel like we're going to have to come, have you come on for a part two, uh, cause there was so much to talk about and just not yes. enough time. Oh, please. Oh, please. I just, I love, this is what I love. I kind of just want to be a professional info dumper. That's pretty much my goal right now. So I would love to be on anytime. Well, we benefited from all of that information you shared. Uh, So for Talking With Tech, I'm Rachel Mado, joined by Kim Neely. Thank you guys so much for listening and we'll talk to you next week.